instead of starting with who am I in Christ and then responding out of that. We think that we are who we are because of what we do, and Paul is sharing with the church and us that who we are is because of who Christ is. So in order for us to understand who God is and what he has done, what Paul did in the first chapter is he started this letter with praise. Maybe you remember this, but he just piles up word upon word and praise upon praise for who God is, his greatness and his mercy in Jesus Christ. And I said this a bunch at the beginning of our series, but the the verses 3 through 14 in the Greek are actually just one big, long Hebrew run-on sentence. And then in the second half of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul then starts to intercede for the church, which means he just prays for the church in Ephesus. What does he pray? He prays that God would give them spiritual eyes to see and spiritual eyes to appreciate and to understand and to come to a greater comprehension of God's mercy to us in Christ Jesus. And why does he pray this for the church? Because he knows that we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the reality of who God is and to the work that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. We, we need that. And I don't know if you remember, but I suggest that we pray that for each other. God, open our eyes to the reality of who you are. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Without God's work in opening our eyes, we will not see what he has done for us in Christ. As we jump into chapter 2 of Ephesians, we should know that Paul is really just continuing with what he has prayed. He, he wants us to know what God has done for us in Christ. And so the theme really of chapter 2, if you wanted to know as we study it, is all about God's work. God's work in four different ways. Today we're going to look at God's work for us. And then next week Dan's going to share with us God's work in us. And then God's work through us. And then finally, God's work among us. God, or sorry, but in order for us to understand the work of God, Paul first has to set the mercy of God against the backdrop of our predicament. In order for us to know our need for God's mercy, we have to understand why we need God's mercy. And this is what we're going to look at today, the predicament and then the answer. But before we get into this passage this morning, I want to make two statements that I think are really important. First, I want to say to you what I actually wrote down at the beginning of this week as I began to really study these verses. And here's what I wrote. Lord, please don't let me get tired of the truth of the gospel. Please don't let me get tired of the truth of the gospel. And I'm aware, <clears throat> because I talk to you guys, that some of you <laughs> can come to a passage like this and say, yeah, I already know that. I, I, I've heard it before. Teach me something else. Let's go deeper. Talk about something more relevant to our culture. Let me say this to you, if that's how you're thinking, because I can do the same thing. Trust me. There is literally nothing more relevant to the Christian life and to our culture than the gospel. Nothing. And, and I believe that this is why Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened to resurrection power because on our own, we can have a tendency to file this passage under old news or dull news. 
And, and that's a very dangerous thing. So pray this prayer with me this morning. Please, Lord, do not let me grow tired or bored of this truth from your word. The second observation that I want to make for us is this. This passage that we're going to study this morning, especially the first three verses, can really rub us the wrong way, especially if you come in here this morning and you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ. These verses can be hard for us to hear. And so we can come to them and struggle here because God's word runs counter to our human thinking. And what we really need again is for God to open our eyes to see the truth of his word. I was reminded this week of Isaiah chapter 55 and in verses 6 through 8 it says this. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then the prophet Isaiah goes on to say these words in verse 8, which I think are important for us to see. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So all of that to say this, the second statement that I believe is really important for us to be aware of this morning as we jump into Ephesians chapter 2 is this, we must never be surprised if the thinking of God runs counter to the thinking of man. We should never be surprised if the thinking of God runs counter to the thinking of man, especially when it impacts the most crucial areas of our lives, eternity. With these two observations, let's look again at Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verses 1 through 3 this morning under this heading, Life Apart from Christ, or Life Apart from God. Look with me at verse 1. It says this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Stop there for just a minute. Paul has this very bleak but realistic message for us in these first three verses. The message is this, the natural state of all human beings is spiritual death without Christ. So if you are now a follower of Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus, spirit, are you, this, this, I'm sorry, I'm trying to figure out why I wrote it this way, but <laughs> uh, if you are now a follower of Christ, spiritually dead is what you once were. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, this is a description of your spiritual state right now, dead. And this is harsh, I know. But Paul is saying that apart from the mercy of God, we are all spiritually without life. And it's important for us to know that Paul isn't, he's, he's making an absolute statement here. Meaning this, he isn't saying that if you aren't careful then you are all in danger of death. He, he is saying absolutely that we are naturally in a state of real and present spiritual death apart from Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to notice here that Paul is covering his bases. So in verses 1 through 3, he's talking about everyone. In verse 1, he's talking to the Gentiles in Ephesus when he says, and you... But he's also talking to all of his fellow Jews. How do we know that? Because he says, we all, in verse 3. And this is important for us to see because Paul isn't some sort of Christian bigot. 
And, and he isn't preparing to describe some degrading segment of society or some cannibalistic tribe somewhere far away in the jungle. He's not saying like everybody out there. He's not putting himself on a pedestal. He is simply just laying out the reality of life apart from Christ. Without Jesus, naturally, we are spiritually dead. Warren Wearsby's thoughts, I think, are very helpful. He's a commentator. He says this, All lost sinners are dead, and the only difference between one sinner and another is the state of decay. The lost derelict on Skid Row may be more decayed outwardly than the unsaved society leader, but both are dead in sin, and one corpse cannot be more dead than another. The biblical diagnosis of our sinful nature is death. Now, this thinking is the complete opposite of what our world would tell us about ourselves as humans. The world would tell us that we're basically good, and if we just believe in ourselves and we act good, then we can do anything and we'll be fine. And, and let me be clear here, a spiritually dead person can indeed do amazing things in the world. They could be great artists, they could be impressive athletes, they could make money, they can do humanitarian work, but spiritually, they're like zombies, Alive physically, but because they have no sensitivity towards the Lord, they are dead spiritually. To be spiritually dead does not mean that we are physically dead, socially dead, or psychologically dead. What Paul wants us to understand, though, is that without Christ, the most vital part of a human's personality, the spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, God. Without Christ, the most vital part of a human's personality, their spirit, is dead to the most important factor in life, God. Again, this seems really harsh, but Paul actually isn't done with us yet. <laughs> he supports his thesis in verses 2 and 3. Look again quickly at 2 and 3. They say this, You once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul supports his thesis that we are dead by saying that the lives of those who are apart from Christ reflect the dominion not of God, not of life, but of the world and the flesh and the devil. The word that is translated walked in our text in verse 2 is this idea of meandering or walking around without direction or any goal. And so it would be spiritually aimless is what he's trying to say. And the Greek phrase that is translated course of this world refers to the wind. And so the implication of verses 2 and 3 is that whichever way the wind is blowing in our world is the way that we are walking when we are spiritually without life from God. Why is this true? Because we're completely caught up in our flesh, verse 3 says. And so we're enslaved in a futile attempt to satisfy our flesh. Who is blowing this wind that Paul is talking about that drives us to walk without direction? Well, he says it's Satan. He says it is the prince of the power 
of the air? How does he blow this wind that drives the spiritually dead? Well, he's dictating the culture and the trends and the interests that so captivate the hearts of those who are driven by their flesh. And I would imagine that you could fill in the blanks for what people are drifting towards in our culture. Why are they doing this, though? Satan, their flesh, and the world. No spiritual life from God. And Paul wants us to see the condition of life without God. Okay, I want to stop here for just a second and ask a couple of questions that I am sure at least some of us are thinking this morning. Did Paul maybe get just a little bit carried away here in this paragraph in Ephesians? Is our condition apart from Christ really that bad? Is it possible maybe that Robbie is just losing his mind? The answer to that one is yes, but the answer to these questions is really that our condition without Jesus is really this bad. Theologically, what we would call that, what Paul is describing, is total depravity. Thank you. Something we don't like to talk about. We really don't. But it means that all aspects of our being have been infected, infected with the deadly disease of sin. And God, in his grace and in his kindness, is helping us to see here in Ephesians chapter 2 that morally we're not capable of responding to God apart from his grace and his mercy. The fact is, these verses should drive us to the reality that our need is obvious and we need to be rescued. We need God. We need the grace and the mercy of God. Let me, let me just say this as we move on in this text. Trust me when I say that I understand that these words are hard. I, I, I've been actually wearing the weight of preaching this passage all, all week long. And let me be honest and say that I would have loved to have skipped verses 1 through 3 and just gone to verse 4 this morning. So why didn't I? Why are these first three verses so crucial for us to hear and to understand? Why does Paul draw our attention here to the depth of our depravity in our lives without God? Here's why. We will never understand our need for God if we think that we are not in need of God. Paul shares with us this reality in verses 1 through 3 because the depth of our depravity magnifies the mercy and grace of God in saving us. It's like, if you need a, like a word picture, it's like a black cloth upon which sits the most beautiful diamond. And Paul moves on, praise God he moves on from these verses to give us this diamond of the gospel with, with two of the most important words in all of scripture. Look with me at verses four through seven, which say this. So he says, you are dead, wicked, depraved, but God. 
being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." So with two of the sweetest words in the whole Bible, Paul gives us the hope that we so desperately needed after the last 15 torturous minutes of me talking. In fact, if you are a Christian, these two words, but God, are your biography. This is your story, but God. Notice three things that bring so much hope in verses four through seven with me. And maybe this first one is just too obvious. But the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that Paul infuses hope by pointing us in the direction of our help. He just said, you are spiritually dead. And so the question that we should be asking is this, then what am I supposed to do? Where does my help come from? He says, your help comes from the Lord. Paul is pointing us in the direction of our help. The words, but God, point us to the direction of our only hope. Don't miss this. Paul is saying, when you could do nothing else, God. This message is essential for our faith. Why? Because we love to stare in the mirror, all of us, and try to figure out how to help ourselves. It's human nature, but the Christian message, the good news of the gospel is never a message that says your help comes from something inside of you. The message is not, but Rob, see how I did that? My name's Robbie. (laughs) But Robbie had to make himself undead. That would be terrible news. I think probably a lot of us are familiar with the quote that Benjamin Franklin made famous, God helps those who help themselves. And just to be clear, so I don't get an email about the historical background and any of that kind of stuff, I am sure, just hear me clearly, that there are probably some merits to what Ben Franklin was trying to tell us in his context. But just so that there is no confusion here this morning, we need to understand that that kind of, of thinking is really bad theology when it comes to our salvation. Because if we were dead and God only helps those who help themselves, then we're still dead. And so when we see the words, but God, we need to know that our hope does not come from within us. It comes from God. God is the source of your help. God is the source of your hope because he took the initiative and came and rescued us when we could not help ourselves. This is amazing news. Hear this so clearly. Our world is dying to tell us that our hope in life comes from within us. Or our hope comes from something that we deserve. Our hope comes from changing the way we live or our identity or something like that. Our hope is not from within us. Our hope doesn't come from something that we have done. And it certainly does not come from something that we have deserved. Our hope comes from the good and gracious God who has reached out in his mercy to save us from our sins. God is your help. God is your hope. And so I want us to notice in those first or verses four through seven, first, that we have hope because of who is stepping into our darkness. It's God. 
But the second thing that I want us to see this morning that I think fills us with hope is this. I want us to see the work that God does in us when he steps in. Paul points us to the fact that in our state of spiritual death, God is where our only help comes from. And then he makes it clear what God does when we submit ourselves to his saving grace. He starts in verse 5 by saying, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so the work that God does in us is he makes us alive. I think that we struggle to understand what this means sometimes spiritually. But look with me just for a second at two quick stories from Jesus' ministry that I think will help us understand what Paul is saying. In, in Luke chapter 7, when Jesus was walking into a city called Nain, he ran into a funeral procession, procession leaving the city. The only son of a widow was being taken out for burial. In Luke chapter 7, verses 14 and 15 say this, Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. So with a single sentence, the word of Christ, the sentence that Jesus spoke, brought that man from death to life. In John chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus got sick and died while Jesus was out of town. Maybe you remember it. Four days passed, and Jesus finally shows up to help these people, and he walked up to this tomb of Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And then in John chapter 11, verses 43 through 44, it says this, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud, loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. Notice again, with a single sentence, the dead came to life. And I think we are really good at understanding these physical miracles that Jesus did when a dead person was brought back to life. But what Paul's trying to tell us here in Ephesians chapter 2 is that if you are a follower of Christ, then that same miracle has happened to you when you were saved by grace. If you say you don't have a testimony, you're a liar. You were brought from death to life. It is a miracle. You were by God brought, sorry for calling you a liar. You were by God brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. You were brought to life. It is like God is saying, Robbie, come out, rise up, come to life. I know that I'm quickly running out of time this morning, but I want us to know that we cannot overemphasize the importance of the doctrine of regeneration. Christianity is not about becoming a nicer person, nor is it about starting a new religious routine like going to church or reading your Bible or being extra spiritual. Christianity is about becoming a new person. It is about being brought to life by Christ. And because of this, we need to remember this when we talk about this stuff. No one is beyond the reach of God's regenerating grace. And no one is beyond the need for God's regenerating grace. But Paul doesn't stop here. Look again with me at verse 6. He says this, And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
So consider with me the staggering nature of God's work in uniting us with Christ. I'm just going to say this. I'm going to admit it to you. This is hard for me to understand. It's hard for us to understand, but let's try for just a second. Paul doesn't simply say that Jesus was raised and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. That is true. But he also says that if you are in Christ, you are raised and ascended and seated at the right hand of God. How can this be true? You're sitting in this room. Here's what Paul means. Having by faith trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has united you to Jesus Christ so that everything in Christ is yours. That's the definition of salvation. That's what God is saying to us, and it should make us speechless, that in his mercy, he has saved you by giving you everything that belongs to Christ. He has given you the benefits of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. He has given you the benefit of Jesus' ascension. He has given you the benefits of Jesus' heavenly session, ruling at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He has saved you from sin and from the condemnation of your sin. And he has given you all the benefits that flow from what Jesus has done on your behalf. And one day... We will be with him and experience all of the fullness of this, but it does not make it any less true right now. Because these realities change everything. This is so important. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is the work that God has done for us in Christ. He makes us alive and raises us up and seats us with Christ. This is our identity as believers. Now, if you're anything like me, you might say something like this. Why does God do this for us when we're dead, when we're corpses? Why would God do this? And for me, this is the most important point in this whole message this morning. It's because of his character. This is who God is. What motivated God to do this for me? Did God look down on us and say, you know, they're just so wonderful, I can't help myself? Or did God look down and say, you know, some people down there are just better than other people? Or did God look down and say, there are just some people that are trying really hard and I want to bless them? No. I find it so fascinating that when Paul tells us why God did this for us in verses 4 through 7, he does not mention anything about my merit or my ability or my goodness. Why would God reconcile man to himself? Hear this very clearly. It is because of his character. Look again with me at these verses really quickly and notice God's character. Number one, it shows us his mercy. Look again at verse four, it says this, but God being rich in mercy. And then we see his love in verse four, it says this, because of his great love with which he loved us. Then look at verse five and see his grace. It says this, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Then look at verse 7 and see his kindness. It says this, so that in the coming ages we might show the immeasurable, he might show the immeasurable 
riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Psalm chapter 103 verse 8 says it like this, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 31 says it like this, nevertheless in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says it like this, But God, there are those words again, proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, dead, depraved, and doomed, Christ died for us. So what is Paul saying? Why would God reconcile us to himself? Why did God send his son to die for our sins? Why is God willing to raise me from the dead? Because of his great mercy and his love and his grace and his kindness. I think that you probably get it. But let me just reiterate that it wasn't because he was looking down at any one of us and saying that we were so lovable. It was because of his character, his mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness And this is really good news. Why is this such good news? This news is so important for us, and I really want us to hear this. Because if we think that there is something in us that can or has evoked God's love and kindness and forgiveness for us, then we will also think that there is something in us that could undermine God's love and kindness and forgiveness and grace to us. It is of superior importance that you and I know that it is the character of our unchanging God that is what makes us alive and secure in him. And so when we know this to be true, then we can agree with Romans chapter 8, and we can know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Worship team, you guys can come on up. So the question for me, as it always is, as I'm studying, is what do we take home with us this morning as we leave this place? And for me, as I just tried to think of what to say, I I honestly think the most beneficial thing for all of us would be to remember these two sweet words from Ephesians today. But God, but God. These words and today's passage give to us what we should call the movement of grace. What is the movement of grace? It is death to life. The movement of grace is from hopelessness and alone to being reconciled and seated with Christ. Practically, what do we need to know Practically, we need to know that we are not just left in our sins. We don't have to be just left in our sins. You and I, this morning, can be courageous in admitting our sin precisely because God is richly abundant in his mercy. Why why would anyone turn that down? 
He comes to you in mercy, not because you're good, but because you are a sinner. And he knows that because of this condition, you are unable to help yourself. Hear this so clearly. Sin means that you are a bigger danger to you than anything else is to you in your entire life. Why? Because it is impossible for you to run from you. There is only one hope. Your only hope is that someone with power and wisdom and mercy will invade your life, forgive your sins, and progressively deliver you from the hold that sin has on you. But God is literally the best news. The mercy that you and I so desperately need comes to us in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God. Rich in mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. All that you and I need is to realize our need of new life and ask God for his grace. Lord, step in, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word again this morning. And Lord, I'd, I'd just go back to the beginning and say this. Father, may we never lose the wonder of the gospel. Lord, I pray that this morning, by your Spirit's leading, we are drawn to the beginning of verse 4, and we just say, God, step in. God, do what you do. Lord, we trust you, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.